passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. We're going to be in Mark 14, starting in verse 1. What I want us to do is uh, to read through our text Uh, Verses 1 through 11 here at the beginning of our time together, and then uh, we'll kind of work our way through it after that. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to follow along. Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 1. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it out over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For the ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me, for you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial, and truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Let's pray. Father, as we consider your word this morning, we ask that you would speak to us through your spirit. And as we examine specifically the actions of of this woman, I ask that you would create within each and every one of us a heart exactly like hers. God, that we would be a people who increasingly see you worthy of our entire lives and not just to confess you with our lips, but to respond with every facet of our lives to the reality of your glory, the reality of your worth and beauty. God, we ask that you would bless this time in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning uh, we're kind of in the, the home stretch of the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Mark chapter 14, 15, and then just a few verses into 16 uh, tells us the final few days of Jesus' life. Mark chapter 14 is known to some uh, scholars as, as a chapter of abandonment, and that's exactly what we really, uh, that's what we see here in this passage. It starts with Judas abandoning Jesus. And the the gospel of Mark chapter 14 really escalates that abandonment of Jesus until we get to the denial of Christ by Peter at the end of this chapter. And what we see in this this morning's passage is really this uh, contrast between the actions of the chief priests, the actions of Judas with this unnamed woman here. And if you've been with us in the Gospel of Mark up to this point, you're probably familiar, you may remember, that one of Mark's favorite uh, approaches as he's telling the story of Jesus is what we affectionately call a sandwich, because we like sandwiches here at Crosswinds Church. He he will start with one focus, verses 1 and 2, 
and then he'll transition to another focus, verses 3 through 9, and then he'll go back to that original focus here in verses 10 through 11. And the purpose of doing that is really to to weave these two threads together and allow us to interpret both stories in light of the other. Specifically, this morning it is done in contrast. We contrast the actions of this unnamed woman who is the model of discipleship here in verses 3 through 9 with the actions of the chief priests and the scribes and Judas, those who really should be responding to Jesus with discipleship. And we see this contrast and how different they are and how that ultimately will lead to Jesus' death. So here's what I want us to do this morning. I want us to spend the bulk of our time in the heart of this passage, verses 3 through 9. We're going to look at this woman and her actions. We'll take a few moments to, to talk about the chief priests and the scribes and, and Judas. But the bulk of our time, I just want us to focus here on this woman and her unbelievable actions. We're going to see this text really unfolds in, in three movements. First is the woman's actions. Second is the crowd's or the disciples' response. And then finally, Jesus' commendation and explanation. So let's go ahead and jump in. Briefly, verses 1 and 2, Mark reminds us of the setting to this point. Jesus is in Jerusalem for the Passover, along with hundreds of thousands of other pilgrims. Uh, Historians will actually tell us that in the first century, around this time, uh, Jerusalem, the size, normally 25,000 to 30,000 people. But during the Passover, up to 250,000 people were in Jerusalem during that time. So there's a lot of people around right now. Jesus is one of these pilgrims. To this point, Jesus has been teaching in the temple. The crowds are amazed. They, They love what they're hearing from Jesus. But not everyone loves what Jesus is saying. In fact, Mark reveals to us there's this hidden plot underneath the surface from the chief priests and the scribes. They, they don't want to embrace Jesus. They want to instead kill Jesus. But they also recognize Jesus is really popular. He's, he's really, really got the crowd on his side. And so they don't want to lose the crowd for themselves. And so they begin to scheme and plot, how exactly can we kill Jesus without losing our own popularity in the prof- process? And, and I mean, can you, like, this is just incredibly spiritually bankrupt from the chief priests and the scribes. These are the people who are supposed to be the leaders of the Jewish faith, and rather than embracing Jesus, they hate him, and they're trying to get rid of him. Mark tells us in chapter 3 that this is already going on at the beginning of Jesus's ministry. There's this duplicity here. They want to maintain in the for all appearances, on on people's good side, and yet they want to do whatever they can to get rid of Jesus. Now, we're going to say any more on that um, right now. I just just want you to, to keep these people, the chief priests and the scribes, and their response to Jesus at the back of your mind as we consider the actions of this unnamed woman, starting in verse 3. And while he, Jesus, was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. 
So Jesus is in Jerusalem for the Passover, along with hundreds of thousands of people. As you can imagine, if there's that many people in Jerusalem, uh, there's, there's not a place for everyone to stay. And so a lot of these pilgrims would go to the surrounding communities like Bethany. That's what we see from Jesus and his disciples. Mark 11, 11 tells us that they're actually staying in Bethany. While Jesus is staying in Bethany, he's invited over to the house of this man named Simon. Simon's a very popular name in the first century, and so we are given this distinguishing mark. Uh, he's Simon the leper. Of course, if, G- if this man is actually a leper, then he wouldn't be having anyone over because he would be unclean. And so we can assume that he is Simon the former leper. Uh, and, and the fact that this is his title means that something special happened to him most likely, and, and very possibly it's that Jesus healed him. Whatever the case may be, he's having this feast, he's having Jesus over, and in the midst of this time, this unnamed woman comes up, interrupts the dinner, and anoints Jesus with oil. Now, the Gospel of John, John 12, tells us that this is actually Mary, the sister of Lazarus and the sister of Martha. Mark doesn't tell us that because Mark, I think, is trying to uh, keep this contrast here between those people who are named, those who are supposed to respond to Jesus the right way, the chief priests, the scribes, and Judas, and really the disciples, on the one hand, with this woman who isn't even named. That's why, even though we know this is Mary, the sister of Lazarus, the sister of Martha, Mark doesn't tell us that. Well, this is a significant thing that she does. She, she barges in. She breaks into this feast. Uh, first century Jewish culture uh, was a, a culture that significantly undervalued women. And the notion that a woman would, would come into a feast without being asked, this feast that primarily consisted of men, it would have been an incredible breach of, of social etiquette. And yet that's exactly what she does. And not only does she interrupt this feast, but she actually causes a scene. And I don't say that critically of her. Because she, she does something amazing, and yet there's no other way to describe what she does than to cause a scene. She takes this jar of incredibly expensive perfume, and she pours all of its contents onto Jesus' head, smashes the jar, most likely on the ground. This is a moment of extravagance this moment of excess. Just consider for a moment what exactly this woman is doing with the gift itself. She takes this alabaster jar full of pure nard, which might not mean a whole lot to us. I don't know if any of us have nard laying around. I don't. But if we do a quick search on, online, you might find out that, that pure nard, it comes from this plant that is, uh, grows in northern India, near the Himalayas. And if you, you know, pull up your phone and you're kind of bored and you want to see how far is Jerusalem, Bethany, uh, from northern Himalayas, it's about 2,500 miles as the crow flies. This is very far from where it originated, and yet this family has it. And you can imagine, you can begin to imagine, well, that's why, or part of the reason why, this is such uh, an expensive perfume here. In fact, later on in verse 5, the way Jesus' disciples respond to what this woman does, they, they tell us the value of this perfume. They say that it is worth 300 denarii. And we're like, okay, 300 denarii. Yeah, I got a couple of those in my wallet. No, we, you know, we, we think of 300 denarii. I don't know if, about you. I see that. I'm like, oh, that's probably like 300 bucks. Thankfully, our Bibles have footnotes, right? And in the footnotes, it tells us what a denarius, one denarii, is, is worth. 
And it tells us that one denarius is, is the equivalent of the, the wages that a day laborer would receive for one day of work. So you work 12 hours because that's what they did back in those days. You work 12 hours in one day and you receive one denarius. You begin to think, oh, if there's 300 days worth of work for a day laborer that this woman uh, has perfume that is worth that much, this is, this is a, a really expensive perfume, to say the least. In fact, if you factor in weekends, this is about the, the equivalent of one year's worth of wages for a minimum wage worker here. To modernize this, this isn't something that is worth about 300 bucks. This is something that's worth about $25,000. John, the Gospel of John tells us the size of this uh, flask. It's about the size of a can of pop. This is an incredibly expensive perfume here. And the, and, and the amount of, of the cost for this perfume reveals to us a little bit about this woman's thought process. This isn't something that this woman picks up in the merchants, uh, you know, from a merchant in Bethany on her way to this feast. She hears that Jesus is in town and she wants to do something nice for him. So she runs to the store on a whim, picks some of this up and brings it to him. Uh, I don't know uh, about many of you uh, husbands. Uh, I imagine that many of you have per- purchased perfume for your wife. Uh, you, you've purchased chocolates. You've purchased flowers for your wife on a whim from, for no purpose whatsoever. You just felt like doing it. But I would imagine none of you spent $25,000 on those objects. If you did, talk to me afterward and we'll talk about your giving habits. Because this is something that is extravagant here. You, you wouldn't do this on a whim. This is something that you would think out, that you would plan for, not something that you would do just spur of the moment. In fact, this object, this ointment is of such value that it's relatively obvious that this woman, or any other person for that matter, wouldn't have this kind of thing laying around. They wouldn't be able to go to the store, pick this up. Hey, you know what? I'm going to drop $25,000. I'm going to bring it uh, to this feast, and I'm going to, to use it on Jesus. Instead, this is in all likelihood a family heirloom. This is something that has been passed down in her family for generations, the, the most prized possession of her family. And it would have been used for, for one of two purposes. The first one is if she remains unmarried to the point of her death, and this would actually be used to anoint her body in death, kind of a, a mourning process. But the second thing is, it, it would be used in the event that she got married as a part of her dowry. What she would bring into the, the relationship with her husband as a gift to her husband's family, as a sign or as a commitment uh, of her own financial security. And when we begin to think about that, this is a family heirloom. And in all likelihood, this has a, a lot to do with her future, whether as a dowry or whether it is as her, uh, the perfume for her own burial. We begin to see that this is a, a, a lavish gift. It's not just the cost that is significant here, but she's actually throwing her future on the line. If this is a family heirloom that was given to her as a dowry, She's pouring out her own future here. The dowry is an essential part of marriage in a traditional society. No groom's family would ever accept a bride without the dowry. 
And by pouring the dowry out on Jesus, she is destroying any chance she has of a normal future. She sacrifices her future in this premeditated moment of excess for Jesus' sake. For some reason, she believes that Jesus is more important than her future. If we look at the Gospel of John, we see why. Why she believes that for some reason Jesus is worth more than her future. The Gospel of John tells us that this is Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. And I think it's in John chapter 12 when we see this parallel passage. And it tells us that it takes place right after Jesus has raised her dead brother from the grave. For some reason, this woman thinks that Jesus is worth all of this. And then we see, well, of course she would think that because she doesn't know how to respond to what Jesus has done to her and for her and for her family than to respond in excess and to to pour everything she has on Jesus. And as we soon see from the, the reaction of the crowd, she's not just sacrificing finances. She's not just sacrificing her future. She's also sacrificing her social capital in this moment because people respond to this with ridicule. They cannot believe what she is doing. She doesn't just pour a drop out on Jesus, uh, two drops out on Jesus, which would be very generous in and of itself. But she takes all of the contents, pours it on Jesus, and breaks the bottle, symbolizing that it is completely consumed. There's no way that you can get this back into the bottle because the bottle doesn't exist anymore. She gives it all to Jesus. How do people respond? Well, as one pastor says, uh, her, her respectability goes the way of the flask. She draws the ire of the crowd, right? People see what she does, and they, they begin to, to murmur and, and mutter about this woman and, and her excessive show, that she has sacrificed everything, her, her wealth, her future, her present, because of who Jesus is and what she sees of Jesus. And rather than responding with commendation, The crowds, which we will see, is really just the disciples here. Matthew tells us that in his parallel account. The disciples, Jesus' closest uh, friends, respond with criticism. Verse 4. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. John, in his account, tells us it's Judas who says this, and and Matthew, again, tells us that other disciples joined in. Yeah, Judas is right. We could have have done that. The the disciples, they they respond not with commendation, but with criticism. I'm sure if you you just begin to imagine what this scene was like, you you can hear it in your own minds. You can hear their muttering, their grumbling, their complaining about this woman. Can you believe what she just did? So undignified. What on earth is she doing? What an absolute waste. I cannot believe her. And the grumbling goes on and on and on. Mark tells us that they scolded her. This really severe word, uh, this term to show how little they thought of this woman and her actions here. And just take a step back. 
in this moment. These are Jesus's closest friends. These are the ones who have been with Jesus for all of his ministry. These are the ones who have been exposed to his kingdom, uh, his teaching on the kingdom of God. They've been exposed to his private teaching on who exactly he is. And they respond not with praise, but with criticism. They respond with grumbling and muttering when they should have responded with, oh man, I I wish I would have been the one who did that. That should have been me. No, they instead respond in a way that shows how little they value Jesus. This woman's actions, they, they, they show how much she values Jesus, right? They're so wasteful, so extravagant, so obscene in the world's eyes. The only way that they make sense is if Jesus is really that valuable. And her actions really line up with her beliefs. What about the disciples here? The disciples in their grumbling and in their complaining and in their muttering and in their scolding and in their criticism are really showing what they think of Jesus. I don't come out and say it. But in their response, what they're saying about Jesus is, you know what? Jesus Jesus is great, but he's not worth that. Jesus is wonderful. But let's not be carried away here. They show their heart in how they respond to this woman. And just for a moment, think, think of how Jesus responds or feels in that moment. He, he knows about the plot of the chief priests and the scribes to kill him. He knows that Judas is about to betray him. He knows all that's taking place. And now here, his closest friends they respond in such a way that says, you know what, Jesus, you're, you're really not all that impressive. You're really not worth all that. Of course, the disciples, they don't come out and say that. They actually take their criticism and they, they veil it in this sense of moral superiority. Well, Jesus, what we're really concerned about is, is, uh, is taking care of the poor. Do you have any idea how many mouths could have been fed if we would have sold that? We're just trying to be faithful to God's word here. God tells us to take care of the poor. Do you have any idea how many people we could have taken care of? The duplicity of the disciples is exactly like the religious leaders in verses 1 and 2. They want to keep appearances of being faithful, and yet their heart is really revealed in their actions. Here the disciples are so offended by what this woman does in offering this to Jesus, but they want to to maintain appearances, and so they wrap their criticisms in this veil of moral superiority, and they say, well, Jesus, we're actually just trying to be faithful to God. Why? Why this visceral reaction to this woman and her actions? Many of you are familiar with uh, Dwight Moody, D.L. Moody. He's uh, an evangelist from the 1800s, the Moody Bible Institute in Chicago is named after him. And and there's one thing that Moody was really known for, and that was his passion for evangelism. His his desire to see those who are far from Jesus, those who are lost, come to a saving faith in the Lord Jesus. And there's this alleged story. I've heard it before. I, I can't verify it. 
I wasn't there. Um, of course I wasn't. It's the 1800s. I, I, I don't know if this is true or not, but apparently there were um, a number of people, professing Christians, who, who said uh, a, a lot of things that were critical of Moody. Uh, They were very critical of his methods. He was known for door-to-door evangelism. He was known for preaching on street corners. And his critics would say, hey, you know what? This is a very ineffective way, a very unhelpful way uh, to evangelize. In fact, we think, Mr. Moody, that you are actually doing a disservice to the gospel. You're hindering people because they have such a, a visceral response to what you're doing. They're getting so offended that you're actually, uh, you're, you're putting a stumbling block in front of them that otherwise they would have responded to the gospel later on. And allegedly what Moody said in response to these people was, you know, the way I evangelize is better than the way you don't evangelize. In other words, what he was saying is my commitment to the Lord Jesus is seen in my actions. And your lack of commitment to the Lord Jesus is seen in your lack of actions. And we can have a productive conversation, a productive discussion about the effectiveness of our methods in reaching the lost. But first you have to actually care about reaching the lost. These people were using this position of moral superiority as a cover for their own brokenness, the cover for their own lukewarm devotion to the Lord Jesus. They were so scandalized by Moody and his commitment to Jesus. They, were, they, they, they thought he was too radical for them. He valued Jesus too much. And they, they were uncomfortable with that in their lukewarm hearts. And they got defensive when they saw someone who was more uh, committed to Jesus than they were, that they tried to calm him down. Bring him back to the average and they did so from a position of this, you know, pretense of moral superiority. Before Crystal and I had kids, uh, before we actually launched the, the campus down in Spencer, we just moved to town. And one of the things that we wanted to do is to build a relationship with our neighbors so that we could have um, open doors and, and avenue to share the gospel with them. And so one of the things that we did, uh, we, we made cookies, and I didn't eat many of them, which was a good thing. But um, we made cookies with the intention of bringing them door to door to introduce ourselves to our neighbors, share, you know, a plate of cookies, and then um, ask if we can pray for them. What, what are some specifics that we can pray for you about? And we felt like this was a little more helpful than um, just going straight up door-to-door um, evangelism because of certain connotations. Uh, but I can't tell you how painful that was, how uncomfortable I was going door-to-door putting it all out there. Hey, I'm a pastor and not just a pastor, but I actually really care about you. What a novel concept, right? And I want you to know Jesus. And I think we did it for like less than a week. And one night, Crystal, uh, she got off work and and she said, are you ready to go um, meet some neighbors and pray for them? And I said, no, I can't do it anymore. Why? Why? And my response was, well, I just don't know if this is the most effective way to model Jesus to others. That might be true. We could, we could discuss that. But I can tell you that's not what my heart really was thinking. My heart was far more concerned about what people were thinking of me. Of this notion that I was a person who actually believed everything, that I, beyond a shadow of a doubt, was someone who was committed to Jesus. 
And when my, when my neighbors began to think of me, they would think of me as that person who loves Jesus so much that it consumes all of his life. And I wanted Jesus, don't get me wrong. But if I'm being honest, I only wanted him in moderation. I didn't want to be that person. I just wanted Jesus in moderation. Moderation can't stand wholehearted devotion. I just can't stand it. It disgusts moderation to see someone who is wholly devoted to Jesus. I think that's an incredibly important truth for us in today's culture. In today's culture, uh, we can have a tendency to think it is so anti-Christian. That's not true. Our culture doesn't have any problem with Christianity as long as it's done in moderation as long as it doesn't influence the way that you live your life outside of your home, as long as it doesn't influence anything beyond what you do on Sunday mornings, you can believe whatever you want, our culture says, as long as it doesn't ask everything of you. Our culture is fine with moderation, but it cannot stand wholehearted, actual devotion because moderation hates wholehearted devotion. When we see someone who is committed to the Lord Jesus in a way that is, is more than, than we are, all too often our response can be one that just rationalizes that faith and that devotion rather than being encouraged and say, hey, you know what? I, I see the way you act and I want to follow. I want to be more in love with Jesus like you. It's like, well, ah, let's, let's, let's not get carried away here. This tempered down faith, uh, form of faith, incredibly dangerous. I'm reminded of the words of, of C.S. Lewis in his book, The Screwtape Letters. If you're not familiar with The Screwtape Letters, uh, it is a, a really fascinating book written from the perspective of a demon counseling his younger nephew on how to be more effective at tripping Christians up. How to be more effective at tempting people and, and ruining their lives. And, and at one point, uh, this elder demon says this, talk to him, the person that you're tempting, Talk to him about moderation in all things. If you can once get him to the point of thinking that religion is all very well up to a point, you can feel quite happy about his soul. A moderated religion is as good for us as no religion at all, and in fact, it's far more amusing. For the disciples, wholehearted devotion from this woman was just too much. And so they responded in a way, not with admiration, but with a cry for moderation, a cry for respectable faith. I told this person, this woman, to get in line. Jesus respond that way? Not at all. Jesus responds with commendation and explains the woman's actions, verses 6 through 9. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. I love this picture of Jesus here. It's an incredible picture of Jesus. Here are a bunch of men who believe that they are Jesus' best friends. They believe that they are Jesus' closest, best followers who are scandalized by a woman who really shows them how bankrupt their commitment to Jesus is. And they respond not with repentance, but instead by making her feel like garbage. And Jesus comes to her defense and says, leave her alone. 
You think that was a wasteful thing? I think it is a beautiful thing. We might wonder about Jesus' words here on the poor. Is Jesus actually saying, you know, don't worry about taking care of the poor? The wording's kind of weird here. But the disciples bring up the poor, and Jesus decides to call them on their bluff and says, okay, you want to talk about the poor? Let's go ahead and talk about the poor. And, and what I want you to do is, is write down the passage, Deuteronomy chapter 15. Deuteronomy 15 is actually this passage in the Old Testament that Jesus is alluding to. He's actually quoting from uh, verse 11 there. Uh, And that's one of the reasons why the the wording is a little uh, unique for us. And we're like, well, does that really fit? It's because Jesus is quoting the Old Testament on what the Old Testament says about how to take care of the poor. And Jesus says, hey, you know what? We're not going to talk about the poor. Of course I care about the poor. We're not talking about value statement over here. We're talking about a value statement about me. If you really understood who I was, then you wouldn't be talking to this woman this way. You wouldn't be undermining her. You would actually be celebrating her with me. And in the context of Mark as a whole, I know this is going way back for for you all. Um, The end of Mark chapter 12, verses 38 through 44, there's this contrast between False devotion from the scribes and true devotion to the Lord from this widow. I think you guys looked at it in March. She comes with all she has, which is a penny, and she puts it in the offering box in the temple. And Jesus says, hey, you know what? That right there, that is true faith. She has put in more than anyone else has. And there's this parallel here between that woman's actions, the widow in chapter 12, and this unnamed woman here in in chapter 14. Look at the, the parallels here. Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. So we have a woman who has put in everything she had. And then we get into Mark 14. She has done what she could. Everything that is in within her uh, sphere of ability, she has done. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial, and truly I say to you, and then he goes on. There's a parallel here of language. In other words, what Jesus is saying is these two women, this poor woman who gives a penny, and this woman who has to be somewhat wealthy if she has $25,000 lying around, These two women are are perfect examples of people who respond to me the right way because they see how valuable I really am. And again, what about the disciples? What about the disciples here? See, whether this woman realizes it or not, Jesus says she's actually anointed him for his burial. In just a couple days, he's going to be crucified. And this woman is a part of God's plan in her faithfulness, in her devotion to Jesus. God is using her to prepare Jesus for his crucifixion. And Jesus says this astonishing thing, that this woman's actions are so tied to the gospel that wherever the gospel is proclaimed, she will be mentioned as well. And we're we're testament to that, aren't we? Thousands of years later, thousands of miles away from Bethany, we're talking about this woman. 
significance uh, of connecting this story with this woman, I think Jesus means two things. First and foremost, because God is using her actions of faithfulness to prepare Jesus for his own death. It's, it's tied in with the death of Jesus. The sacrificial death of Jesus on our behalf. But second thing, I think more relevant for us this morning, is that her actions show us how we also are to respond to Jesus and to the gospel. Here is this woman who worships Jesus wholeheartedly because she understands who he is and how much he is worth. And in the same way, the only right response for us, thousands of years later, thousands of miles different, is the exact same thing. is to respond with full devotion, giving it all to the Lord Jesus. The text ends with a contrast, shows Judas's decision to betray Jesus. On the one hand, we have this woman who is giving everything, her financial security, her future, her current present social capital. She gives it all to Jesus because Jesus is worth it. And on the other hand, you have Judas who is so upset with this action that he goes out of his way to offer up Jesus. We see what Judas really values. Jesus, or this woman, she loves and values Jesus more than anything. And Judas, he loves and values money. He betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. A paltry sum compared to what this woman offered up for Jesus. Wholehearted faith from this woman versus this devotion that is moderated. Faith in moderation that hates the extravagance of this woman so much that it is willing to put Jesus to death. And as we come to a close, we, we get to a point in this passage that we see from the Gospel of Mark over and over and over again. Mark never gives us the, the application and says, here it is. It's always just right under the surface, and I think it's a lot more powerful that way because you are left reading this passage, and the only thing that you can do as you look at it is say, well, what on earth about me? What about me? Am I like this woman? Giving it all? Am I like the disciples? Faith in moderation. Here's what this text really boils down to. It's this powerful truth. We can only worship Jesus wholeheartedly when we see Jesus' worth more fully. If you really want to worship Jesus wholeheartedly, you actually have to see who Jesus is and how valuable and precious he is more fully. So ask yourself, do, do you see Jesus for who he really is? What do your actions say about what you think of when it comes to Jesus? I'm not talking about the box you check on the census that says Christian. Or what you do on a Sunday morning or, or the words you profess on a, on a Sunday morning as your life is laid bare, as, as everything is exposed, because nothing is off limits from the Lord Jesus. What does it say about your greatest treasure and your greatest delight? Is it like this woman? Is there nothing more precious to you than the Lord Jesus? Beware of, of deadly moderation. 
There are, four, there are fewer things more dangerous to our souls than a heart to says to Jesus, you know what, I, I'm, I love you, but, but you, you, can, you can only come this far. There is nothing worse than this heart that is, is unwilling to, to surrender everything to Jesus, is unwilling to become more radical, unwilling to break the flask like this woman, pour it all out for Jesus. Beware the temptation to moderation. And when you see that in your heart, when you examine your, your thoughts and, and your actions and the words you say, and, and most importantly, I think for us, is where our thoughts run to when we have a chance to daydream. Because that is going to reveal to us what our greatest treasure is. Respond with repentance if that's not Jesus. Because we're not like this woman. We can only respond with full heart, uh, wholehearted worship when we begin to see Jesus for who he really is. What would it look like for our church to be a church that, that took this seriously? What would it look like for you to be a person who took this seriously? How might we be changed? What might it ask of us? Where might it lead us if we took us seriously? If we became more and more like this woman, this beautiful woman who does a beautiful thing for Jesus, who sees that Jesus is more precious than life itself and throws it all uh, on the floor for Jesus. What if we be people who break the flask? Let's pray. Lord, as I, um, I consider my own life and my own priorities, I think all too often I'm, I'm, I'm more like the disciples than I am like this woman. And so first, I, I just ask for forgiveness for that. And I thank you that there is grace in the gospel. That salvation does not depend on my faithfulness in following you, but in the work that you have accomplished on the cross on my behalf. I say thank you for that being true, not just of me, but, but of everyone here. And Jesus, I ask that you would help every single one of us become more like this woman, more committed to you, more faithful, more in love with you, to see you more fully so that we can respond with more wholehearted worship for what you have done for us. Help us, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.